Welcome to What I Wish I Knew by Dental Head Start, your weekly mentoring session thanks to cpdjunkie.com.au. When we come out of university, it's often a challenging discussion just to figure out what's best for a tooth. Is it a filling, an inlay, an onlay, a crown? What What's going to be best? Which material should we choose? And, and these decisions are pretty crucial, but also the way we convey this to our patients and the way we help them make the decision for them is crucial. And today, we're speaking with Dr. Michael Frazes. He's a general dentist working with Ripe Global and just produced a lecture on this exact topic. We spend time with Michael talking about the choice of materials or the choice of onlay versus crown versus filling. But first, we talk about the challenges he experienced with this discussion with his patients early in his career. And he gives a little preview of how he manages that discussion now. With making decisions and when you go filling, inlay, onlay, crown, it's something that really stumped me when I first graduated. And it took me a long time to sort of wrap my head around when I would do this. And I actually, I recorded a lecture. I was up until like 1.30 last night recording this lecture about it. So, um, this is all fresh in my mind. That is on Ripe Global, is that right? Or will it be, will be. It will be. <laughs> I need to edit it first. <laughs> Fantastic. Go on. So, yeah, with making decisions about doing fillings, inlays, onlays, crowns, it, it is something that I struggled with when I first graduated. And it wasn't because I didn't know what the right decision was we kind of go through dental school and they drill into us gold is the gold standard and ceramics are going to be better than you know composites and and all that kind of stuff so we kind of know about the materials and all that kind of stuff but then we graduate and we start doing a lot of communication based courses and they kind of drill into you that the patient needs to make a decision the patient needs to own their problem and do this and do that which is all good But the problem that happens is we put so much weight on the patient's decision and we give them so much information to make that decision because they haven't had that five years of dental experience and dental school knowledge that we've had. And we want them to make a decision of what kind of material to use and then ask them about it and then expect them to get the same answer that we have in our head without the same knowledge that we have. So it's like you go to your heart surgeon and this heart surgeon goes, well, I can put an artificial heart valve. I can put a pig heart valve. I can put a a cow heart valve. I can put a human one. I can do this. And then the patient's just going to ask them, well, what would you (laughs) want to put in there? What's going to work best? So for some reason, in, in dentistry, we go, no, no, you have to make a decision because, you know, you own it. And that's fine. They do need to own their decision. But the way that I phrase it these days is this is going to be the best material, the best thing to do for this tooth. If you can't afford to do that, then this is your other option. But the only reason you do that is because you can't afford the better one. And then patients go, okay, I can afford the ideal option or I can't afford it, and then they just do that other option. That doesn't always mean, you know, they go for a filling, but it just means that they have a choice still between two materials, but it's not based on, you know, the modulus of elasticity of that particular material or how hard it is or how pretty it is. It's just what's going to work best in their mouth 
and obviously some patients I then give a little bit more information on like if I say you need a crown but then I really think they need a gold crown I go well do you care that it's going to be a gold crown no okay we'll do a gold crown if they do care okay we'll do a ceramic but these are the limitations of the ceramic it might break more frequently if that happens then we can change it over to a gold crown etc etc with when to do a filling or an inlay or a onlay or a crown when i first got cerex i was doing a lot of inlays and then i realized that a lot of my inlays were just essentially a small sliver of ceramic floating in a sea of composite glue and that's just because my preps were pretty horrible as i started doing more and more prepping of teeth i realized a lot of my inlays were basically just onlays or should have been onlays anyway and a lot of my really small inlays should have just been fillings. So I tend not to do any indirect inlays these days. And I just do either a really good filling or it tends to be an onlay. Now, where, not how I differ, but as soon as you need to cover a cusp of any kind, you need to go indirect. So that's going to be better the longevity of the tooth and the strength of the tooth if you go indirect if you need to cover a cusp so an occlusal filling can be done as an indirect but i don't because there's no great advantage in my hands to do a simple occlusal filling as a indirect obviously if the patient really wants gold fillings then obviously you can do a gold occlusal filling and that's fine i've got one patient who really wants all his fillings to be gold so i might end up doing that but it's, that's kind of the exception to the rule. But as soon as a cusp needs to be covered, then I go, you have the option. Indirect's going to be better. If you can't afford it, let's do it as a plastic filling. So that's the sort of indirect versus direct. Well, when do you go onlay? When do you go crown? Well, here's where I, I might differ from some people. As soon as the whole occlusal surface of a tooth is covered as an indirect, it becomes a crown in, in my hands because that's the procedure that you need to do. You're covering the, all of the occlusal surface of the crown. But then people go, but the crown's normally down to the gum line. Well, no, that's just a, a traditional way of doing a crown. If you put your crown margin one millimeter from the occlusal table or two millimeters subgingivally, it's still a crown. It's doing the same job. It's just not covering all of it. And then there was a, cause I mentored some students, well not students anymore, they've graduated. And that one of them was saying that their practice has an arbitrary rule of you call it an onlay. If it's higher than 50% of the buckle margin, if it's lower than 50% of the buckle margin, it's a crown. Well, that's just a line in the sand. Why don't you do it 49%? Why don't you do it, you know, 51%? And it's just rule rules that we make up for no reason and it's not like the mechanics of the crown are going to change if it's 49 percent or if it's 51 percent it's still doing the exact same job so my onlays tend to be if most of the tooth is covered except for one or two cusps then you know it's an onlay if no cusps are covered it's an inlay which i don't really do and if all of the cusps are covered it's a crown regardless of how high or low the margin is. And then you get into your crown lay debate or your endo crowns or your other name. You can do a verti prep. You can do a traditional chamfer margin. They're all types of crowns. The procedure is a crown prep. It's just where do you put the margin? That depends on the actual 
case. And that's what the whole lecture that I was recording last night was about. It's like, where do you put your margin for crown preps? It's like, do you go here? Do you go here? Do you go where do you go? So that's what I spent two hours talking about. <laughs> well, I'm I'm looking forward to watching that actually because I think that's something as as a new graduate, as a um, early stage dentist, we they they can be questions we're not quite sure about. And as you said, if it covers the whole tooth, call it a crown. Uh, something um, a lot of people don't realize when you're in the public system before you graduate is that it makes a very big difference to a patient's health fund as well, what you call mm. it. Um, and if it's a legitimate crown, they're going to get a lot more back. So, that, that yeah. helps your patient as well. Yeah. Um, I think you've clarified those things really well. I really like the way you you communicate your um, your options and you're not confusing the patient. You're still giving them um, options, but it's really like this is the best and then if, if we can't do that, well, this is the other option. Hmm. Um, I think that's really, really good. It's interesting how almost always it comes back to communication and here's just another example. And one of the things that I do is I'll always overquote or over under promise and then try to over deliver. So there are some cases where I go, I think this needs a crown. It, it tends to happen a lot these days because I tend to be a little bit better at figuring it out. So it was a bit more early on where I go, I think this needs a crown, but then I do a bit of a prep and I go, actually, this is this is an onlay. This is not a crown. That marginal ridge, there's no decay there. It's all fine. Whole mesial half is fine. I'm just going to do an onlay. It works in my favor that I do have Seric because I can just sort of change that, you know, really easily. Even if you're sending it to the lab, it's not that big a deal because it's over two appointments. You just do a, a temporary for an onlay and then send it to the lab. Yes, the lab's going to charge you the exact same amount of money if it's an onlay <laughs> or a crown or an inlay because the lab doesn't care. The lab just charges you the 250 the 300 or 400 for whatever it is. Um, and then you just go from there. But with the decisions and giving the patient that choice, the problem that people sometimes have with my line of thinking is, but then the patient doesn't understand you know, the material that they're getting or things like that. Well, once I give them that option, then I can give them a bit more detail about it. So I don't need to give them all the details for all three options and then get them to make a decision. I give them the details that they care about, which is going to be the best, how much is it going to cost? Because let's be honest, that's generally what patients care about. And then from there, I can delve into other details and then go, okay, well, we're doing all your front teeth. I can do this kind of material or this kind of crown because you have a denture and we need it to fit a bit better. And I can do rest seats better on a PFM than I can do in an Emacs or, you know what, you have a really high aesthetic case, but you are a grinder. So I don't really want to do, you know, little tiny dainty veneers. Maybe we have to go for a monolithic Emacs kind of thing. So get to those little, you know, nuances with, with those patients. But that's after you've made the decision on do we do it in, you know, composite or do we do it as a interact, not beforehand. Because then people just get overwhelmed. I can't remember because if you give people three options, they tend to go for the middle one. And there was a while that I was giving people the options of, and I don't know why I was doing this. I think it was after a, a certain communication course. We could do, let's say it was a five surface, full coverage filling. And I was going, okay, we could do it as a resin. It's going to cost you this much. We can do it as a 
onlay, a full coverage onlay, but I was still calling it an onlay, it would cost you this much. And this was back when I was using different materials for onlays versus crowns. These days, I just use Emacs for both. And it costs you this much. Or we can do a crown and it's going to cost you this much. What I found was all my patients were just getting onlays. And that's not because it was better. It's just because they go, okay, my budget's not going to stretch to doing a crown, but I don't want to do a filling. So I'm just going to do an onlay. But then what would happen was I'll do all of these onlays and 99% of them midway through, I was like, this should have been a crown. This should have been a crown prep. This needed to be a crown prep. And I was spending the amount of time that I take to do a crown prep, but I was charging for an onlay. So then what I did was I just got rid of the onlay option. And suddenly what happened was all these patients that needed crowns were choosing to get crowns just because they didn't have that middle option of the onlay, which was only there because I wanted to give them every single choice. It's like people who go, you need to give the patient the choice of doing nothing. And the patient comes in with a facial swelling and their face <laughs> is all the way out here. It's like, yes, technically I need to give you the choice of doing nothing. But we can why? do nothing, but you might die. <laughs> yeah. It's like you, you go into, you're having a heart attack and the, yeah. the doctor goes, do you want me to treat you for the heart attack or do you want me to not treat you? I mean, it's implied when they come in that they want treatment. So you, giving them the option of doing nothing kind of is a bit superfluous. Yeah, that's, that, uh, that really sums it up, I think. I think it really highlights the fact, though, that uh, the way we communicate, communication, the way we present things actually shapes the way a patient perceives things and therefore mm. it shapes the kind of care they're going to get and the kind of treatment you're going to do for them. And that's why it is such a crucial part of this. I think you've really, really highlighted a few things um, in thinking about the decisions, the pathways and communication. I really appreciate that. Dr. Michael Frazes, thank you. Thanks. And I hope that helped you with your decision making. And now we've got a discussion with Dr. Jeff Hall from OrthoEd. We're talking about the risks, something obviously you need to discuss well and communicate well with your patients if you're doing orthodontics in this OrthoEd segment. We're talking about the risks specifically for my ClinCheck that he's looking at while we're talking about this. Um, but it is a broader picture about risks in orthodontics. If you want to find out more about this, check out our social media. You'll see the video. But also, if you want to get any of the OrthoEd courses discounted, you can get 10% off. Go to our show notes, find the discount codes, and make the most of that ortho education early on in your career. So welcome to the OrthoEd segment. We're lucky enough to have Dr. Jeff Hall with us again. This is part two of three in diagnosing and managing me, my teeth. Um, this is my case um, here. Uh, this time, we're going to talk a little bit about risks. We're going to talk about um, the things that, especially us early stage in our ortho journey, we need to be looking for something we might just not think enough about. Um, using my case as an example, but Jeff will go through a bunch of risks that we've got to think about. So welcome again, Jeff. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure as always. So um, there's a few risks. You mentioned some in the last one. Um, what risk are you looking at in my case? Okay. The risk I'm looking at, obviously, the first risk is obviously the recession yeah. that is associated with your 3-2. And so we've got to be very careful with any type of expansion that's going to occur in that, in that area. And one of the things that we're going to talk about 
is the staging of treatment. Too many people just look at the case from the beginning and the end. Mm. We've got to look at the staging, how they're moving the teeth. But let's even let's go one step further. So if we look at one of the big risks that we the, that we talk about is the root position. And especially when you start dealing with aligner therapy, it's very difficult to move roots because aligners are like a URA, in essence, where you've got pressure on the crowns of the teeth and you it's very much easier to move the crown, but you need to move the root of the tooth as well. Mm. And if you don't get the root in the right position, the stability will be very compromised. Mm. So if we have a look at, so we've got this issue here with the lower left lateral. We've got, with the upper right lateral, once again, you've got a little bit of a powerfully positioned root there, and we're going to move that. We're going to move that root across. The other parts that we that we need to look at. So when we look at the superimposition, and this is something people forget, you've, they've done a lot of expansion on in your case. So they've done a lot of expansion. So when we go into the lower, when we go into the lower arch. So once again, they've, they've done a fair bit of expansion. Now, the question here is, or the, the comment is, this is what we call cartoon odontics. Mm-hmm. So they've given you this beautiful clean sheet and they're saying, great, we're going to expand you by two or three millimetres. But we know from all of our history of doing this for 20 years and we know from the literature, you're not going to get three millimetres of expansion. What are you going to get? About one and a half. So what does that mean? With one and a half millimetres of expansion, you're going to need to do far more IPR than what's suggested in that clinching. So that, so if you're just going to go by the IPR that suggested the clinching, you're going to fail because you mm. need to make space. So if we go ahead here, I'll just take off the superimposition for a second. And so can you see how what they're doing initially from a staging point of view, they're moving the anterior teeth forwards. And then you're going to do the IPR to move the teeth back. Yeah, it's even more than, yeah. So up until stage 12, you're actually moving the anterior teeth forward, which is not incorrect in certain situations. But when you've got your recession, a potential recession, you want to avoid that as much as possible. Once again, saying to me, the concept of an extraction here may be better to avoid any forward movement because that's what that clean check is going to be doing for you. Yeah, so, absolutely. So but, now, the, the other issues that you've got from a risk analysis is the is the movements. You've got some seriously rotated premolars, mm-hmm. some seriously rotated uh, canines. These are very difficult teeth to derotate. And the other part, here, the, this is classic of what we see. They've got programmed 0.4 millimetres of extrusion on your upper right lateral. Now, Invisalign and every other company, they will not default to an attachment to 0.5 millimetres. <laughs> so tell me how this your tooth is going to extrude with 0.4 millimetres, okay? Uh, I love the concept. It's like, all right, the plastic's just going to hold onto this round tooth and just, exactly. yeah, it's magic. <laughs> what, makes it, what makes it even worse is you've got some intrusion hmm. built into your upper central and upper central sizes. So what's the reciprocal effect when you intrude? Is the aligners are going to move out, okay? So you're going to actually detract even worse. Mm. And yeah, just 
I don't think there's a case that I would do today which wouldn't have horizontal attachments on your lateral sizes. Yep. And so a lot of these attachments that you've got here are not very adequate. Like you two put your upper left five, that is an attachment for, for root movement. You're not going to get your extrusion out of that. Hmm. So real, a lot of these optimised attachments are very inefficient with the type of movements. And you've got to look at every two and every movement. So there's a lot of risk factor with regards to actually achieving the desired result. Yeah, the- yeah. Just look at this very quickly. It's going to be, yeah, it's going to be basically impossible for you to achieve, to achieve that um, that result with without without some different attachment placed. I guess the summary here really is that when you're using aligners and looking at the diagnosis and setup on an, on a ClinCheck or any other company, um, you you are in control and what they've shown you is cartoon odontics. There are major risks with just leaving things and not understanding things. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention, because I know it's relevant for mine, I guess de- deciding on whether that 3-2 with the recession is going to come out to allow us space is something to think about. But then the wear I have on my teeth in the front teeth and the shape of my front centrals, meaning our final result may need some composite work or something. Um, and we see this all the time, lining teeth up, and then you straighten things up and the, the teeth are not straight at all. It's not giving the patient what they want. What they need is alignment and some sort of restorative as well. I just want to point that out. Because um, that's, I think, very relevant. I think I, I think you hit the nail on the head totally. Yeah, that we're one of the mantras that we teach in our course, which I think it's really appropriate, not just for line of therapy, but everything we do in dentistry. Promise less and deliver more. Yeah. So all of these patients, when, when you start them, you have to explain to them that they may need some restorative dentistry, and if they don't, you look like a genius. Yeah. <laughs> you do, you're fine. Yeah. Spacing cases, for example, in my practice, I will tell every patient we may not be able to close all the spaces. But, yeah, we'll redistribute them so they're going to be in a better situation for your final restorative build-up. Mm-hmm. I think that concept of promise less deliver more will make your practising life far, far better in everything you do. Absolutely. That crosses over into every single thing you do in dentistry, a crucial little tip. Well, um, I think that's a great little summary of the risks in my case. Um, thank you, Jeff, for sharing that with us and the OrthoEd segment. Um, obviously, if you want to learn more about this kind of stuff, Jeff runs OrthoEd. So there are courses, there is actually a discount through um, Dental Head Start as well. So um, yeah, join me on that journey. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, David. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com to find everything we're doing to help dental 